Hey there, thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. We're everywhere now. Spotify, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple iTunes, wherever you can subscribe to your podcast. And that's thanks to our friends at SpeakerMatch.com. They sponsor the show. SpeakerMatch is the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. So as speaking events come back, if you're a platform speaker, maybe you're a meeting planner and you need a speaker, you can find one another at the virtual marketplace at speakermatch.com. When you talk entertainment, you automatically think Las Vegas. And when you think entertainment in Las Vegas, if you're in the know, if you're an insider in that industry, you think about our guest today. Mark Prouse has spent almost four decades in and around the entertainment business in Las Vegas. He has an incredible new entertainment uh, uh, hybrid opportunity to help you stay connected and charged up. And we're going to talk about that as well with his new venture, Mark Prouse. Let's talk entertainment in Las Vegas. You grew up in that city. You're one of the few locals that actually is is from Las Vegas, right? Well, I guess the true locals would probably be offended by that because a lot of locals would be born here and then they would not leave, right? And so what happened with me is I was actually born here and then I left several times and realized the value of Las Vegas and it really always felt like home. And so I came back a few different times. So yeah, yeah, I, I'm a local. So people, you know, fly in and out of that city and they go to shows and they go to conventions and they gamble and they have fun. But there's a whole lot of people that live in that city. And of course, way more than when you were a kid. So take me back to the Las Vegas of your youth. What was it like growing up in that city? Well, it was, uh, my, my grandparents actually lived here and we lived outside of town in this small town outside of Overton, uh, kind of near Mesquite, if anybody knows that, that territory. So my earliest memories were coming to see my grandparents and coming in over the top of what we now call Apex at the top of the hill. And you could see this bright light and it was just so surreal as a child. You know, we had five kids uh, in the family and we were all in a station wagon and we'd all cuddle to the front seat. And as we come over the hill to, to see the bright lights of Vegas, and really the bright lights of Vegas then were, were Fremont Street. There was really nothing, <laughs> wow. nothing else to it. I mean, uh, my dad was a big adventurer. So we would drive for what seemed like to a child hours to get to uh, the Hoover Dam which now it's all connected, you know, I mean, Boulder right. City is a, has a little bit of a gap in there, but not much. Um, and it, it goes all the way out into Boulder City and, and so on and so forth. So the metropolis that it is now with 2 million people and, uh, you know, people have made a lot of money in, in buying desert, um, you know, sitting out in the middle of nowhere that is now encompassed in parts of the city. Um, and it's, it's pretty interesting to see the, the, the growth of the city. But to your point, it does take a small army to support all of the things that happen here in Las Vegas. And uh, that's the reason for the, the, the astronomical growth. Mark Prouse is uh, one of the leading entertainment executives for decades in Las Vegas. We're going to talk to him about some of the celebrities he's rubbed up against and some of the crazy things that you see in that city. Um, but I am fascinated a little bit by by kids that grow up there. I, I as you know, worked and lived in Las Vegas in the late 90s for a few years. And uh, one of the guys I worked with was also born there. And he said that as a young guy in the 1950s, I think there were 10 to 12,000 people in that city. So was it, uh, uh, did it, did it feel like a big city to you as a little kid? What did it feel like? 
Well, of course, as a child, I mean, Las Vegas is surreal. I mean, I mentioned the lights and those kind of things, but it was a, it was a place where I think what I got bit by the most that really steered my career more than anything too was, was it was a fun place. It was a fun business. Um, you know, it was a place where you went to like leave your worries behind. And I don't know if you're a gambler, probably create new worries. <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, if you were a child, it was just so surreal. It was like, I lived in, in this Disney-esque kind of, kind of town that, um, in the area. And that's really what brought me back. I think that what you also get addicted to is the 24 hour part of everything. Whenever I go move, move somewhere else or live somewhere else or wherever I would travel, um, and, and it's still frustrating to me that they roll the streets up, you know, and you can't, you can't go get groceries when you want here. It's just like, you didn't think about it. You just yeah, you know, you get anything you want at any time. Pretty much. I mean, you may have to travel a little bit farther, but not, not outside the city or not nowhere at all. I mean, you can get pretty much anything you want. Yeah, for good or for bad. Yeah, um, that's true. <laughs> and, and what year did you graduate from high school? 76. I, that was a big bicentennial year. So That was a big year. A lot happening in the country. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure Las Vegas probably put on a big show in, in 1976. You remember fireworks and uh, you know, centennial celebrations and all that? Well, that? That was one of the times that I was not in in uh, in. Las Vegas, oddly enough, I graduated from Madison High School in uh, Rexburg, Idaho. So, my, we did, my parents had moved moved us to Texas. That's where a lot of my formidable years were. Then uh, they moved us up to Idaho, and that's where I graduated from from uh, high school. And then, um, you know, ended up graduating from the University of Wyoming. And then I, I came, you know, went went on my entertainment journey and ended up back here in Vegas a couple of different times. So, and five kids, <laughs> the only one that did entertainment. Say again. Were you the only one of the five kids that wound up in the entertainment business of your yeah, sibling? Yeah, there was five kids, two brothers and two sisters. My two brothers are, are, are both uh, within the petroleum industry. One of them was an engineer. And uh, my, my two sisters are, you know, entrepreneurs and that kind of stuff. So they uh, uh, to totally different businesses, totally different disciplines, all very, very successful in, in their realms. We're talking entertainment and more with Mark Prouse. He's a longtime entertainment executive in Las Vegas. Um, interestingly, and I, I thought this was fascinating, even though you spent the better part of your childhood there, uh, and maybe you, you got the bug by seeing showgirls or seeing shows there, you actually physically got into it when you were away at college. Was it in Wyoming? It was in Wyoming, yeah. Uh, as the story goes, is uh, I was I went there to play some play football for a half a minute, got injured, and that was a good thing. Um, the bottom line was it comes down to the end of the day. You, um, you know, you, you, you get focused on some other things when that happens to you. The good thing was I got focused on academics and what my future was about. I, I've always wanted to be an attorney. Uh, that's what I was headed for. Uh, boy, I, I don't know what the hell I was thinking then, but uh, <laughs> I'm, glad I, I'm glad I didn't end up there. That would not have been Mark Krause for sure. Um, but uh, I got I got focused on that. I, I finally majored in finance, got a minor degree in accounting and some did some work in marketing. And I walked up on it was snowy hill one day as I was going to for one of my classes. And I actually had a knee brace on and uh, a gentleman walked up to me and had a conversation with me about when they're putting the, the wood dome structure on top of the, the, the University of Wyoming uh, arena. Um, and we stood there for a minute and he said, you know, you look like a big guy. I'm, 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 by the way, you probably don't know, I'm, I'm six foot six and 270 pounds. So 
but then I was, uh, you know, really rock solid. Down, I was rock solid. And uh, he said, why don't you like that? Come on board and run security for me. And I said, you know, I know nothing about security. And he goes, that doesn't matter. We'll figure it out together. So his name was Steve Dingman, um, a, a really uh, proactive kind of guy. And it just was one of those things that uh, <laughs> morphed in, it morphed into one thing and then the other. And I did put together marketing programs. I literally would sit at the basketball games when Fennis Dembo was there <laughs> at mixing the sound at the soundboard. And then I would get off the soundboard and go down to the uh, for to load in a concert as a stagehand. So I got some really grassroots kind of experience early on in my career. So you were right there building the whole thing out at the University of Wyoming. Do you remember the first national uh, show or event that you were involved in? Yeah, uh, yeah Lover Boy. Um, <laughs> and they had the weirdest writer you can possibly imagine. Um, they just to make sure that people were reading writers back in the day. We didn't know what that they were doing to us. We thought really they were playing around. Um, but they were really trying to just make sure that as Somebody's they paying attention, were actually reading the writer, right? Um, so if they show up in their dressing room and they knew that all this weird stuff was there, like like peanuts or like um, M&Ms that were sorted out by the right colors on different trays and stuff like that, they'd request. And specifically, Loverboy wanted, you know, colored condoms and that kind of stuff. <laughs> we just, you know, and, and so we, as college students, we'd drive ourselves nuts trying to, you know, figure out how to do this. And then, you know, we're dyeing condoms and putting them back in the package. <laughs> it was just <laughs> stupid stuff, but... Uh, but at the end of the day, you make a great point that people that are not in the entertainment business don't realize the bands don't really care about that stuff. They just want to make sure that somebody's reading it and that the sound and the lighting is correct. The stage is right. The instruments are right. That yeah. other stuff is pretty secondary. They just want to make sure somebody has their eyes on it. Well, yeah, I think that the other thing that people don't know is that uh, there's actually a couple of things. One of them is that, that the, the business is actually uh, a lot more complicated, it seems. It's the fun business for sure, but there's a lot of operational expertise and planning that go into every single event, even if they're touring events coming down the road. Uh, the second thing is that uh, related to that, that the production for touring shows is all you know rolling down the road for a reason. It's an erector set, they put it together and they're pretty much in control of and responsible for um, how, the, how the sound works in the building and all the balancing. We have very little of that uh, to do with that as a venue. And I guess the second big thing is a lot of people think that it's really simple, but it, there's a whole business side to entertainment. And it's, and it's a lot more complicated than you'd ever think, uh, not only in terms of, you know, when and how they tour, dealing with artists and, and, you know, all the financial elements around that and the contracts and the, you know, insurance and all the stuff that goes with this stuff. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's the fun business, but it's a complicated kind of business model that's been, you know, perpetuated throughout the years. I know years ago, Mark had the opportunity to go backstage for a Rolling Stones show. Uh, this was the late 80s. And uh, not to see the Stones, but to see their opening act, Living Color. And it's the first time I, I realized that for something that size, they were touring with an accountant. It was a tour accountant yeah. to keep track of the dollars and cents that go on behind the scenes. So I guess that, that leads to the question, what would, in all the years you've done this, what would surprise people the most about the entertainment business? What do you think they sort of take for granted? Well, I think I already alluded to it in a nutshell. They, 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 when, when an event goes well, um, they, 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 there's no real kudos. You know, it's just event went well and they had fun and they, they want to come back. Your reward is that they want to come back. That not only they had a great experience in your venue, but they, a lot of it is 
um, you know, the artist as well. I, I'd like to equate this to like the PBR, which we were involved in at MGM Grand for a while. And, and Randy Bernard, who's a really good friend, he coined the phrase of, you know, the, the, the writer's only as good as the, as the bull, right? So if the bull sucks, the writer's terrible. Well, by the way, the venues and, and, and artists are, are inextricably intertwined together uh, in the same way. Um, you, you, we're responsible for getting people there and make sure they have a good access, a good experience, a safe experience, and good egress. And, um, you know, those kind of things. But the artists, when they take the stage, it's all up to them at that point. You know, if you have a sound glitch or some of the types of things that happen, like the first people that they point a finger at is the venue, right? They have no idea that all this equipment... 20 30 trucks has been rolling down the road and it's their sound guy it's their sound mix it's their equipment that they that they um you know contracted for and so it's just it's there's heavy dependencies on both sides for for touring shows and and it just just how complicated that it really is to make an event go well you went on to uh to work at the legendary cow palace in san francisco and um came back to to Las Vegas or the Thomas and Mack Center, which was, you know, that was the venue for the longest time. But then you had an instrumental part in opening an arena that if folks have never been there, it's difficult to describe. But within the MGM hotel, there is a massive arena, you know, the size of most civic center coliseums in the rest of the country. And it sits inside this hotel. So it can literally take you a half an hour to walk from your hotel room to your seat in that arena. Tell me about being in on the beginning stages of the MGM uh, arena. Well, it started with Dennis Finfrock that was over at UNLV when I when they brought me in to do sponsorships and marketing uh, back in the day. I'd gone to Tacoma, Washington uh, to, to run their public assembly facilities. And uh, that's when Dennis, we, he became the, uh, the athletic director back in the Tarkanian days. And there's a whole story that everybody wants to pick up. There's a whole podcast you could do on that piece right there. Right. Sure. Uh, back in the day, but that's when Tarkanian won the national championship just um, right after I'd left. So Dennis got caught up in that whole AD thing. And then uh, he, we ran into each other at a conference and I knew what he was doing with it when he moved over to MGM. And he said, you know, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to pretty much develop a boxing program and I'd like for you to come and run the arena. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm up for that. And so we worked out the details and I moved the, the, the truck and the camper and everything from Washington to, Washington to, to Vegas. Um, we had to finish the building. That was in the middle, that was December 6th of 1992. And in 93, we were opening with Barbara Streisand. We had a whole bunch of, th the whole boxing program was put together um, throughout the years. We, we did a bunch of stuff with Andre Agassi. We signed deals with Ty Murray on the uh on the on the the, the uh, rodeo side and we had a, just a ton of things that were ready to execute when i got there the the, the building was um in, in enclosed but 15 days we had to we tremendous pressure to get to barbara streisand and by the way she had a clause in her contract that said if if she when she took the stage right i can't i can't just i'm still under an nda there i how much we paid her but she would get a refund. We had to pay her all the money and she could walk off the stage and not have to perform. Get out of here. Two, two, of her, two concerts that were completely sold out at $1,500 a ticket. And we would have had to pay her all the money if she didn't like the venue. Now, you don't think there was a lot of pressure 
on, on the, the few of us that were there to, to, to wrangle and get everything done to open that building. That was, that was one of the key touch points that when we wow. got there, she took, got up on the stage and a lot of this stuff had to do with Dennis before I was ever there. It was, it was the acoustical design that he'd learned from Thomas and Mac. By the way, the audio was terrible at the day, the day there. They sensed a, a quite a bit of, uh, quite a bit of acoustical work in there. But um, back in the day, he learned about that. And, and the Grand Garden became a great soundstage by the way it was built with a lot of flat surfaces and a lot of batting that was put in the roof. And that still to that day, um, the, the Billboard Music Awards, you know, the ESPYs, all the other award shows that we've done in there all over the years, that's because of the acoustics in that building. Um, and it was so unique still is so unique because it, it can sound like a wonderful concert venue, but it's also a beautiful sport venue. Like you, when you were in there for a, for a boxing event, it was amazing how loud it could get um, during those Tyson days and stuff. I just, just really bone chilling kind of sound would come um, in there to create such an amazing event experience. I was out there in the, in the nineties during the Tyson days and, and the numbers that I heard uh, when I lived there is that when he was in town fighting, that the population of Las Vegas would grow by a quarter of a million people. And I've always found it fascinating that folks like you would be able to figure out how to funnel that many bodies through an area, you know, through and into the MGM Grand Garden uh, to have a, a pleasant experience. And there's just a whole ton of sort of logistics work that go into that. Well, there, there is. And, and I'm certainly not going to sit here and tell you that I take credit for everything that, that happened. It takes a small army uh, as it does to run all of Las Vegas, but a small battalion, if you will, in, in, in MGM Grand to, uh, to really put on those major events. Now, that's the impact. And by the way, a quarter million people in, in some of these events is probably a very small estimated impact um, there was probably a lot more people came in for that just because of the ambience in the city would actually change um, dramatically around these major major events right uh, they're not they're not just boxing i mean there there's a lot of other things we could do rolling stones events we would do a strike sense people would come in just to be a part of the ambience in the city of course they want to be at the epicenter where the event's happening which means you have to plan around a lot of safety and security things access things um, of which create a lot of vulnerabilities. You know, when the Tupac Secure thing happens, it was right after one of our, our events. That shows what can happen when, when nothing really happens, but you have the, appear the appearance that something happened and it changes um, the whole dynamic of the crowd and, the, and, and what happens in the venue. So we plan through a lot of things. We learn through a lot of things, uh, no question. But um, yeah, the, the, the major events uh, were, were all of our executive team. We had about 15 people on our executive committee uh, from food and beverage to hotel operations to whatever. They were all part of the, the solution for our events. At that time, and I'll, I'll tell you my, my favorite memory of the MGM Garden, uh, Grand Garden. I, I saw James Taylor there, saw Eric Clapton, but the Billboard Music Awards happened in 1998 there. And I had uh, <clears throat> just gotten our radio station KMZQ to number one in the ratings, the program director, and we brought all the corporate brass in, and we went to the uh, uh, the arena, to the show, and this is when the boy bands were huge. And so I got in a limousine for all the corporate guys from CBS and all our DJs to come in, and right in front of us was NSYNC in the limo, 
So the limo pulls up with NSYNC and everybody gets out and they snap their photos and they're very excited. The next limo pulls up and it's a bunch of us schleppy DJs. We get out and the cameras just go, ah, ah. <laughs> no interest at all. Um, Mark Prouse, our guest today, we're talking about uh, legendary Las Vegas. At that time too, Mark, there was a big push on, it didn't last long, I think it ended while I was there, to make Las Vegas a family destination. Oh yeah. Lots of that happening. I remember Caesars Palace did a, a magic uh, experience downstairs and you know there was all of that happening. Was that a bad move in retrospect? Is there a place for family entertainment now in Las Vegas, now that it's double the size or is this a place for grown-up fun? Well, um, I have my opinion on that, and there's probably some factual data around that, but I'll give you my opinion because I think that's uh, probably what you're asking for the most relevant. Um, yeah, th there has been millions and millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, that have been um, um, that gone into the development of Vegas and what it really is and what it needs to be. Um, there was a thought early on, and by the way, we had a theme park at MGM Grand yes. when we opened, of which Felix Rappaport was uh, was there and running that that piece of it. And, um, you know, I call it a theme at park at. It was not really a theme park because it was like, <laughs> I mean, what theme park's going to be, you know, um, you know, trapped by the amount of real estate they have, but we were completely trapped. The only thing you do is change a few of the rides here and there, but you couldn't yep. grow rides like, uh, you know, Disney and, and uh, the others do. So at the end of the day, um, yeah, it, it opened up and it was fun and we had a lot of fanfare around it. Um, there was a lot of people that thought that was the, the advent of things. And by the way, there was, there was empirical data that told Las Vegas and these smart, smart people <laughs> that this would, this would be a good thing to grow the demographic of Las Vegas. Um, you know, at, look, at, look at the way that Excalibur was designed and still right. is designed. You know, look at Circus Circus and the way it was designed and still is designed and has, you know, the Adventure Dome there. Look at the roller coaster at New York, New York. There is something for everyone here, but you, the shift that you've seen over the years, and specifically since the early 90s, um, has shown that this really is an adult playground. It, it really is a place for people to, listen, listen, if you want to bring your families, it can be safe, uh, fun, secure. There's things for the kids to do. But um, it's not going to become Orlando and it's not going to become Anaheim and, and, and those kind of things. It just nobody's spending money to go in and do that anymore. It, it's all about what I said. It's about family environments. Welcome. Um, and but it's really an adult playground. That's where the money is. That's where the fun is. And there was a, something of a stigma, uh, right or wrong, with entertainers for years. Well, you know, you, uh, Las Vegas is where you, you go for your. Uh, career to die but now the hottest and the biggest entertainers in the world not just in america las vegas is a must-to destination and uh as a guy who won the entertainment icon legend award you probably had something to do with that what was what was the shift and and how conscious was that to make las vegas you know the place to be as opposed to the place you don't want to be as an entertainer well, I'm gonna I'm gonna call out a few people here because uh, again, this this, take, this is a, a teamwork effort and a visionary effort. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Tim Lewecki, who was the president of AEG um, back in in uh, the late '90s and all the way through 2000, I believe, um, who's now the the chairman of o Oakview Management Group (OVG). 
um, which is going to build another arena here in town, by the way. Um, this is how visionary this guy is. I, he, I remember the day that he came to me and said, um, I'd like to pitch something to you guys. I said, okay. Um, he said, and I want Richard Sturm there. Richard Sturm is our president of entertainment. And I said, okay. And he was my boss. So I said, I set the meeting up and it, Tim Lewicki comes in and he said, I want to build a theater um, and I want to, I, I want to do it here at MGM because of our relationship. And I want to bring an artist here that um, I want to run by you. And I think it's iconic and we need to pay her um, well over $100 million to do this gig. And we, Richard and I looked at each other and went, uh, so how does the venue get billed and how do you cover the $100 million? And he goes, we'll cover the $100 million, but um, we need you to build the venue. And um, it needs to be at least, you know, six, 7,000 seats to first to run the pro form on it. I said, uh, wow. Okay, so that, that's big. And by the way, if you don't know, um, even after we got rid of the theme park, a lot of that stuff became a conference center. Um, and we had already done some planning on putting signature towers there. So we were ground locked. We didn't have a theater that made, made sense to do that. And by the way, it was, that was another $100 million, <laughs> by the way. So we looked at Tim and said, Tim, you know, we're, we're just not ready for that. We're not able to do that right now. We don't think we can get that through. But incidentally, who is the artist? And he said, Celine Dion. And we went, hmm, interesting. Um, he said, what do you think of that? Do you think that I can cover my nut? Um, is, we're, we're really be out on the outside edge of this whole thing. And I said, well, if you picked any one songbird on the planet that could probably cover this, you picked the right one. That's right. He really wants to sit down and do this because of the graveyard effect in Vegas and whatever. And she said, yes. And there's a lot of personal reasons to um, and at that time, we didn't know that her, that, that her husband was sick. Um, but at the same time, it came down to where um, they bridged all the stuff and they go over to Caesars. Caesars bit off on it. And of, of course, the rest of it's all history. Sure. So that, that advent of, of Celine Dion was... Was really that the tipping point? A pivotal moment. Pivotal moment. Because everyone was watching to see how this, how this happened. And kudos to Caesars, um, because, you know, all tides float all boats, right? We want Caesars to be successful, even though we, they've done ama amazing things. We've done amazing things. What you don't want to see is a Fountain Blue ha project happen, right? Right. That just gets up high in the sky, and it's a ghost forever. Now, thank God our dear friend, um, you know, is over there. Um, Cliff, uh, he's going to, Cliff Atkins is going to do a great job delivering that product back to this market. But you never want to see that happen. So we were all watching this one thing and it watched for years. And when it was so highly successful, all you want to do is replicate it. And by the way, the whole business side of the industry followed behind it. Agents, managers, artists, every single thing started going, their ears perked up and they went, huh, maybe I don't have to tour so hard. And by the way, touring is not cheap. You know, right. all the buses, all the equipment, all the crap rolling down the road, all the all the buildings you got to line up and all this stuff that happens to do a tour. They're going, hmm, we don't have to be, you know, archaic artists um, that, are, that are sunsetting here and coming to Vegas to die. Um, and so that started the whole conversation around us building a theater, which is, became the Park Theater. Um, then we started delivering, um, you know, amazing artists. Again, that by that time we'd gotten organized as a corporation where I became the senior vice president of entertainment operations. Chris Baldazon became a senior vice president of, of booking and uh, working with Richard Sturm. They're the ones that actually created um, the, the actual artist deals. 
I had to deliver the venue. I had to deliver the, uh, by the way, when you get into residencies and people and your artist is physically living there with you for those period of times, it's a whole different operational mode than it is for to accommodate um, the arena type environment and so on and so forth. What's the big difference there? If Britney Spears sets down in Las Vegas or whoever sits down there, what's the big seismic shift? Well, the, the, the first piece of it is you, you have you have an artist who, who has experienced a tremendous amount of variety, good and bad, on the road. Um, they have they have a lot of people around them that have honed into how to make them comfortable and how to not only artistically but physically, um, and their families and all the people that come with and around them. Um, we deal with that on an occasional basis when you're doing touring type shows and arenas and things like that. But when you physically have a resident artist there, they the, the challenge is to make them feel like this is their home. And, and in, in, in the Cedars Palace situation, for Celine, they literally built her a 2,000 square foot apartment down there. She lived there, right? Well, we didn't have that kind of space to do that for the Park Theater, but we, we needed to be able to do that for right. our, other, uh, our other residencies. So then it became the connectivity to the hotel. How do we move them through the hotel? How do we make this suite, the nice suite that they have there, theirs and their, and their entourages and their management, um, theirs for the time that they're there. Um, and it's not only just the feeding and care, it's, it's literally that, that physical environment. And then making sure when they take the stage that, that everything there is theirs. Um, we modified the venue on many occasions um, for Lady Gaga and for other artists um, that would be there just to change the full sound system. And then after that full sound system was done, we'd have to take, take it back out to turn it into a touring venue and some of the other things we were doing there. So yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very different from the arena environment. And DJs are a new addition to the Las Vegas landscape. DJs have gotten really popular, really big. And, and I wonder if you could speak to that piece and how that's different uh, than it was even 10 years ago. Well, again, I think you have to give um, uh, quite a few people um, some credit in this. The 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 win, Steve Wynn and um, his his team there, Sean Christie, most notably, was was amazing in the way that they created um, um, a lot of the, the the DJ nightclub kind of uh, environments. We had led the way by with by putting Wet Republic in, which is a day club. Um, and then, um, you know, it, it turned into, you know, something that really helped to spur some of that thought that Sean Christie had done with the wind back then. Uh, we had Studio 54 in, in MGM, and, and I, I, was, I was the vice president of entertainment then. Um, Scott Sabella came in as a new president, and if it, he's now running Resorts World. By the way, if you don't know Scott, Scott is an amazing um, thinker uh, in terms of the way, visionary, the way he thinks of things. He came, he came in, went through, and he came and met with me, and he said, so what are we doing? I updated him. What, what are your ideas? And then he said, um, by the way, I met with everybody else, and you were last. The reason why you're last is because we're going to change more in this building around your space than any of the other vice presidents that we have. I said, okay. And he goes, so fasten your seatbelt. I hope you're in for this. So the, literally the next week he pulls me in and he said, uh, we're taking out Studio 54. I got buy-in from corporate. I need you to put out an RFP and we need to figure out how to compete with when. I'm like, oh, okay. That's fast. <laughs> so we put out, literally drafted an RFP very quickly and, and put it out there. And, and of course uh, we got, we got 
five or six really, really good responses. Um, and one of them was from the light group and, um, you know, they're the uh, angel management and angel management um, was one of them that we chose and angel management um, basically had come up with a concept that they wanted to, they wanted to team up with um, the, the Sheikh in Abu Dhabi and uh or in dubai and and basically it was like um they want to create this hakasan brand and they the, the pitch was nothing short of amazing i mean they had done a big i still got it at my house by the way it's a it was a a, a big plastic box and it had all kinds of thumb drives and you know it, it was an amazing pitch and we just went okay and now you got we know you got the money too so but then when we got into the detail and figured out the design, had to rip the whole front of the building off. It's the first time we'd ever breached the outside of the building to build uh, a club. We went from 30,000 square feet in Studio 54 to 90,000 square feet with Hakkasan, uh, not only going up and out, and then that's when the new line was put on the front. Um, but that was that was a, a big part of, of our transformation into that. Uh, Hakkasan, you know, since then went on to build other other things and then Tau became a big thing in Venetian and um, but we led the way with Hakkasan um, because that's when we, the, we ratcheted up the artist. An artist would play for $250,000 in, in Wet Republic and then come and play at Hakkasan for $250,000 more at night. So $500,000 for with a, with, with putting your computer down and and exploiting your brand. <laughs> And pressing a few buttons here and there. Wow. After all the stuff we'd done in all the arenas for some artist to walk out for $500,000, but after all the expenses and all the touring and all the other stuff, and these guys walk in with a thumb drive and stick it into, into a CDC and make 500000 bucks net. We may be in the wrong business, Mark. Oh, it was just, it was just, it still is absolutely amazing to me and it's insane, but I, I, I love the, the DJs that have made this a good, good punch in the arm for the city. Mark Prouse, our guest today, uh, winner of the prestigious Entertainment Icon Legend Award for his many years of contributions to Las Vegas. Um, that city now has way more competition than it did when I lived there. You know, there's gambling across 30-some states now, and yet Las Vegas maintains sort of the, you know, the, the premium spot. How do you do that? How do you compete, not only with Atlantic City and with Branson, but everywhere else that has uh, gambling and entertainment? So it's it's all about um, the mirage, right? Um, that's known as the desert. It's creating that vision uh, for for people that it's it's bigger than than life, and part of that's happened over the history of time. But the challenge is always to to one upsmanship. It's it's always to create the the bigger or better mousetrap if you want to from a business perspective. But it's but it's literally about the the breadth. But more importantly, the depth, the breadth is really the, the demographic. The depth is about um, the, the content. Um, it's about these billions of dollars that we spend on resorts that, that, that are not only beautiful, but they perform really, really well. I mean, you'll notice that the last few resorts that have been built, they all, they're all formed in the form of an X. So they have a central corridor that runs the, runs the hotel um, to a great degree. That that's that's huge efficiency in terms of how that works. But then, but they learn from skyscrapers and other parts of the parts of the areas. But it's it's amazing to to think about the learnings that have happened over time. One of the things we learned was we're nothing without our events. 
um, it has to be, they, they, they create this exposure outside of the, the, the walls of Vegas, the walls of this valley that they keep it relevant. Um, you know, look at, look at all what's happening in the sports category right now, which we're proud to say building the T-Mobile Arena started this whole thing. It showed the advent that a, that a pro sports team, hockey, that is not the number one in pro sports, could knock it out of the park, it got everybody's attention. Sure. Um, and by the way, I'm sure NBA will be here too. But um, then, then when you have Allegiant Stadium, after T-Mobile Arena, you have Allegiant Stadium and you have, you know, uh, all the, the so soccer teams that are, are here now, you probably soon have the, the NBA. The, the key to the whole thing is to have people pivot on us that are, that are, that are international communities like F1. You know how big that is? F1's coming to Vegas. The first thing that Dennis Finfrock had Darren Lebanati and I working on when we first got here was how to bring an F1 race to Vegas. And by the time we got into the detail of that, what roads had to be closed off, what all, the, all the people that had to buy into it, Vegas wasn't ready. Any more than Vegas wasn't ready for an NHL team until we got to you know, 2015, 2016. Um, it wasn't ready. Now it's ready. It's ready to, to, to take the pain to get the game to close. You know, it takes two weeks at a minimum, if not a full month to build a track for F1. Wow. I mean, you can imagine the buildings that are being surrounded that are just on race day, that they, they are small cities that all the food and equipment that has to come into every one of those resorts on a day-to-day -day basis. That's what stopped us back in 1994, 95. We couldn't get Caesars or anybody else to agree that we, we would block down. The, they didn't want the logistics. They're like, it's not worth it. We're not doing it. So, and you know, if you do travel internationally, I just got back from, from a trip to Dubai and, and you see, you, you talk about the international flavor. Las Vegas has really become an international city on a level with we're exceeding places like Dubai uh, through the hard work of all the Mark Prouds of the world that are behind the scenes. And there is a legion of you gentlemen and ladies that, that put all that together. Um, I do have to ask you, because you, you touched on it earlier, Mark, when things go wrong in your business, like they went wrong in, in Houston with that Travis Scott show, uh, when you had the shooting there in Las Vegas, is that, is that the worst day of a venue operator's life when things go seriously wrong? And how do you recover from that? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That one still chokes me up. Because yeah, it was the worst day of my job. The worst. I mean, of course I was there. I just come from a hockey game. Dennis Darren Lebanati was my vice president of outdoor operations. And you know, I'm telling you, um, that shows that you gotta have, you gotta be on your game. And there's nobody on their game like like Darren Lebanati and the team that he built there. They There's their, no way to predict something like no, that. No, but but if he hadn't have done so many of the things that he did, it could have been a lot worse in setting up the venue and executing, you know, the plan. Because seeing it there, and I can tell you my personal experience, but th at the end of the day, it, it um, I know that so many more lives would have been lost from trampling and and other types of things, aside from the shooting. Um, that if, if we had to done the right things, um, 
but you know it's it's just yeah you, th that was the the worst nightmare you could ever dream would happen in the course of your career and you know what's weird about that whole thing was that i accepted the icon award days after that on the 20th of october so days after that and my and bill hornbuckle our president was going to accept you know present the award to me um and I remember him calling me and saying, are you, are you up for this? And I'm like, I'm going to do my best. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. Because we were still in the aftermath of, of a lot of stuff. They, they locked down the venue for months after that with the FBI. And um, there was just a lot of stuff that happened, but it was still a lot of emotion. And you can tell still a lot of emotion built up in me sure. over all those years. Um, it's just, you know, the lives that that affected through one crazy person and what is still happening with all the mass shootings in Vegas? The, the answer to me, and I'm sorry to get a little bit political here, but I have to. Okay. I guess it's just I'm I'm a I'm a big outdoorsman. You know, I hunt. I I, I you know own guns. Um, and I and I believe this with all of my heart. Something we got to get in the fabric of our society and figure out um, all these video games or the virtual realities that we're dealing with or whatever that are that are getting these kids to think about these copycat things or or take out their, their fears, angers, or, you know, um, mental diseases on, um, guns don't kill people. People kill people. And the minute we start to figure out how to get into the, to the psyche of access is one thing um, to guns and, and those kind of things. But the other, the other part of it has to do with just, you know, getting into the, the core of a fabric of who we are as Americans to respect life, to love each other, and to, and to, to help the people that are struggling. Um, that's what really came out of this to me is that, you know, was I ever looking up in any of the events that I planned, all the outdoor festivals that I've done, all of the, the, the pre-events outside the arena, was I ever looking up? This, this one taught me to look up and around and everything else and realize, and it, it, and it taught Metro and everybody else, the same thing. Every event we put on from there, we all had high point security. You know, we haven't even gotten into the other uh, the other parts of technology that are their vulnerabilities, like drones, right, and, and, and other types of airstrikes that can happen. I mean, there there is we can't live our lives like this as Americans, but as event planners, we have to make sure we're spending the money to do the right things for for that safety and security. It's a very fine line that we walk. When people don't feel safe, they're not coming out. And you're in the bring people together business, uh, <laughs> you know, to enjoy themselves. Um, I'm not going to ask you, Mark. I'm not going to ask you to relive that that horrible day. Um, I had friends that were there too, um, but I knew that had to be, if not the worst, one of the worst days for anybody who does what you do for a living. So let's end on a happy note. Let's talk about your favorite artist that you've worked with. No, oh, hands down, Garth Brooks. I mean, what a great uh, guy. Yeah, he's just, I can tell you Garth stories going back to Tacoma Dome days, back when he was when, when he was nobody. And I told this story to him when we were getting him to come to T-Mobile Arena as part of our opening sequence. Uh, Chris Baldazon and I flew to, to, to Nashville and sat there with him. And I said, I, you know, I just want to, you know, I know we know each other, but I, I never told you this story and I need to go back. And he goes, go. And I said, um, we're sitting in his agent's, agent's office and he's got his, he just come up, got off his tractor and he came in there and he's in overalls with, with mud on his boots. It's just the way Garth is, right? 
And I said, well, you know, back in 90, in the early 90s, I was at the Tacoma Dome. And you remember we were doing the sleepovers, you know, when we were doing the, because we didn't have very good electronic ticketing back then. So we had the lines, whatever. So instead of them yeah, People would camp out outside. Yeah. So we brought them inside the Tacoma Dome and we let them sleep. We did a sleepover. And so Garth embraced those kind of things. Um, just amazing the way he would think. He's a marketer at heart, but he just loves people. He got to a place where he it, bring the people inside your venues. Let's make a, a, a media event out of it. So we'd bring in the radio stations and they would do, they'd interview these people all night long and just that the crescendo would build and build and build until we get to eight o'clock the next morning when we'd have the advent of ticket sales. Garth would go on the, the, the phone to every single one of the, the, the outlets and I was I was the one that was conducting that on our end with with Garth, and I was reminding him of when we did that that thing at Tacoma, and we had several thousand people because the, the floor was so big. Um, and so he just he just laughed. I mean, like it, he's like, oh yeah, that that's a great walk in memory lane. And and um, so we we connect on a bunch of those kind of things. Matter of fact, I just went to a show um, at uh, Allegiant where he's doing a private event um, for State Farm. Um, and over all these years, you will never change Garth. He, when, when he puts that microphone in his hand and stands up on stage, the, the human being that he is in life transcends everything else that comes out of his body. And it's, it's just, it's infectious, absolutely infectious. That's, that is, I mean, there's a lot of artists like that. There's no question about that. But in terms of the way because uh, I'm, I'm just a big country guy um, it, it just always and especially now seeing after all these years seeing how that's still the root of him um, if you look up on that stage a lot of the musicians around him are guys that have been with him since he was doing county fairs in the oh, yeah such I mean, a loyal guy you're right the other the other part of that story that I told him at Tacoma Dome was that I Tacoma Dome I was in charge of booking as well so we would go to Nashville and we had, they had a conference there. And part of that conference was that they would do these um, showcases. So they're up and new and coming up, coming artists and stuff like that. Well, I'd walked out of, out of one of the showcases and I'm standing in the line for the bar, which is five miles long. And there's one bartender and <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm like, can you believe this? I mean, they couldn't put another bartender on. And I turn around, I turn around, and I said, I'm talking to the guy in back of me. And he goes, yeah, I know. And I, he said, um, I, I've only got a small amount of time. I got to get back. And I said, get back to what? And he said, I'm next. I'm on, I'm on stage. And I said, really? So what's your name? And he goes, Garth Brooks. <laughs> That's how I first met Garth. Wow. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, so, so you now do something that's pretty interesting in terms of helping people to be able to capture those special moments in their lives. And I tell a lot of the entertainers that I work with, you know, your 30 second interaction with someone is just another, you know, stop in the road for you, but that's a lifetime memory for the person that meets you. It's a lifetime memory for someone to go to a concert or a sporting event. Sometimes it's a once in a lifetime memory and you're making sure that those don't get missed with this, this new thing that you're introducing to arenas so folks can stay charged up with their mobile devices. That's changed the whole game. Everyone now has that phone up and, and they're videoing uh, these events. So talk to me a little bit about that initiative before I let you jump. 
Well, let me let me tell you how um, this this came to be. Uh, after um, being there in MGM Resorts 27 years, through all those amazing experiences, I got a call on May 2nd um, in, of 2020, um, telling me that uh, the the company was making a shift. And on that day, I think they let 42 executives go. Um, many of my very dear friends have been there a long time, and um, long longer story around that. But at the end of the day, um, that was that was the end of it. Um, now I'll tell you that the company took really good care of me in that exit uh, plan, and and I was I was fine with it. And that was because for people who were, were listening, the entertainment industry completely shut down. Shut during down. COVID. Shut uh, down. Not not eighty percent, not ninety percent, a hundred percent. Yeah. So everybody was out of work at yeah. all levels. You know, and I don't know what vision the company had back in that day, but in 2019, we actually it actually enacted a plan called MGM 2020. Um, which was uh, a program to restructure the company. And so we just finished that whole plan. We were into it for less than a year or a little over a year. And um, so we had already skinny down a lot. Um, I was then given a directive in March uh, to, to take it down to critical only entertainment employees because of what you said. And then it got to the end of the day where, um, you know, they, they had to go farther and they went to senior level executives, but so for the, the next year or so, I, I basically ramped up my, my consulting company and did a few of those things. I got bored, frankly. I mean, I needed, I needed more. I, I could hardly wait for the economy to open. There was a fits of starts and stops, and as we all know. Um, and then when we, got to, when we got to like October of last year, things, the offers started coming in. I mean, there was, um, I was talking to ASM Global about a, a key project here in Vegas. I, we were talking to you know, uh, legends and a number of other people. Um, and then I went to a hockey game in, uh, in October and, and met up with Chris Meyer, who's a good friend of mine that was the VP of business development for the convention center who, who had left and is now doing his own thing. And basically he said, I, I, need you, I need you to come over to the house and have dinner and then we'll talk about what's next. So he mentioned June Zhu to me um, with Charger GoGo and she was looking for a chief operating officer. Well, I'm, I've had all these things in front of me and I'm looking at them and I'm going like, do I want to do this? Do I want to do that? Pretty much the venue management business again. Or in the twilight of my career, do I want to take a, take the big gamble, the big Vegas gamble, if you will. Um, so I went over and met with June in early December and um, found her extremely brilliant and compelling. And I fell in love with the product. Um, the, the product, in short, is a vending machine that um, dispenses fully charged, fully mobile batteries um, for you to be able to continue to enjoy your, your, your phone or your, your device, um, you know, while you're still completely on the go. Hence the charger go-go part of it. Um, and so it's an IoT device that basically um, allows us to be able to control the device, it allows us to be able to get the financial, the metrics from it financially or the, the uh, empirical data uh, from it. And it, uh, it, most importantly, it solves a, a serious guest pain um, of, you know, battery level anxiety. Um, I, being in the entertainment business, I immediately got it because there's so many times I'd be working events that, yes, of course, my office is right there. What am I going to do? Go plug my phone in over there while it gets another charge? And I literally would have to plan those times in my event planning life right? Uh, to, to make sure I had a full charge. Now, I wasn't even using high social media then. And no, 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 
no major Zoom calls. You know, we're not talking about all the so, all the things that drain your battery quicker. Um, now you have them where they're they're crazy. So I I immediately pivoted on this space not only because I, I could I could um, have a maybe a really good payday on the end of it because it was so different. It was so tangential and strongly tangential to my entertainment context and experience that I knew that I could I could be a creative to help grow this company exponentially the way it would need to um, to hopefully get get some investors eyes to, to really to really light up. Um, and I can tell you, Burke, this has been one of the most amazing rides over the last six, seven, seven months with the growth of this company and the advent of what what we're doing. We're in a lot of key accounts, major venues. We're in the conference convention center here. We're now in 25 states after a few months. Um, we now have a lot of distributors um, that are that are bringing the, 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 the unit on board. And we're just super excited to uh, continue to, to, to grow this company and this space. If someone is interested in, in Charger GoGo, -Go, what's the website and where can they find out more about maybe putting one of these uh, uh, devices in their facility? How can they find you? So um, chargergogo.com to our website is the best place to go. It, it'll lead you to a whole bunch of other places, including how the unit works. It gives you a demo of how it works, what it's all about. We're also on, on Facebook, LinkedIn, and um, TikTok. Uh, matter of fact, one of my guys that works for me just posted on TikTok the other day. You got to go on and see this 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 short video they did. It's it's pretty fun. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it shows how you can have fun with with the product too. But that's the best place to go to really get the the head end of of all the things we do. Um, at the end of the day, you can we, we place the units for free as a, on consignment to businesses and share revenue share thirty percent with them on a consignment model. So there's no money out of pocket, and we rev share with you. Um, on the other side, if you want to go deeper with us, that's a distributor model, you can actually buy in the, the, the units on a wholesale basis. Um, you know, we give a special pricing on those where you can you can literally buy um, a lot of units for anywhere from five to fifty thousand dollars and run your own business. And the rev share model on those, it flips around where now you make 70 to 80 percent of the revenue on those. So um, we have a model for pretty much anybody that wants to go. And the, 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 the great part about the the distributor model is very much like a franchise, but without having a, a specific demographic that you have ownership with, but you can, you can grow it very, very quickly. When you realize the different places you can go where your battery goes dead, your mind will start to bug you to death. That's what I did to Mike Enoch, by the way, that put us together, a very dear friend. Yes. Um, and then we, we got him a device and now he's running around with it like it's a newborn child under his arm going like, look at this thing, <laughs> look at this thing. Um, because it really is exciting. It's, it's, it's just one of those kind of things that I think that uh, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be reading about us in, in, a, in a few short months. Uh, uh, by the way, I want to tease this because I think we're really close to this. So I'm sorry, John Taffer, if I'm spilling the beans, but if you know John Taffer with Bar Rescue, uh, we're having great conversations with them around uh, some things that we want to do. By the time this actually airs, we'll know where we're going with them, by the way. Um, Good. So uh, just just look for look for uh, the, the next bar rescue, and you'll see those kind of things coming out to show not only how ancillary revenue and and can can help save businesses and when they start thinking out of the box this way, that's why John loves this is because he when the first thing he goes into a bar to teach people to to, to manage the bar is turn over every rock, find every revenue stream, no matter how small, and make it a great great guest experience. 
we are in a digital society. People will always need to be stay charged up. And I'm going to leave you with these thoughts here from my dear brother, Dale. Yeah. Work for a company in Nicola um, in Arizona. Uh, Nicola is uh, a large vehicle manufacturer that, that for the do dump trucks and long, tra long travel vehicles. Um, and he's in charge of the battery distribution for them. So who do I call before I decide to do this? I called Dale up and I said, Dale, um, tell me about startups. So he gave me startup one-on-one education. Um, and then I said, tell me about batteries. And I said, I'm concerned that if I pivot on this space, I'll get to a place where all of a sudden they'll come up with a new battery technology that will phone, people's phones will last forever. And he started laughing and he goes, ha, that ain't going to happen in my lifetime or yours. And by the way, he's my younger brother. <laughs> um, and he said, he said, because um, like if Elon Musk wanted to pivot on this space to make Tesla's lighter or some other thing, he wouldn't have done SpaceX. He wouldn't have done the boring company. He wouldn't have been done doing the other stuff. He would have pivoted and put billions of dollars into this space. Um, same, same thing with Apple. I mean, they sell millions of batteries and phones when they replace them. They're going to make a... And by the way, battery phones are bigger now than they, they were getting smaller, smaller, smaller. Now they're getting bigger and bigger, and bigger. Go the other direction, so, That's right. which means they don't need to like compress the batteries and go into battery technology development kind of things. I said, thank you for that. I'm going to take the job. I'll call you back later. <laughs> so that's kind of the way this whole thing worked. And I just, I think at the end of the day, um, this is going to be not only a very necessary um, space, but it's a fun space. We're in, we're in festivals. Um, we're in uh, events and arenas. We're in McDonald's, we're in um, all these places and we put them in um, fully deployment to my shout out to my, my dear friend, Cynthia Kaiser Mercy Murphy. She fully deployed the Palms before it, before it reopened. Very good. Uh, we're, we're just deploying Yamava Casino down in, uh, in California, obviously the parent company to um, the, the company that bought the Palms. And uh, we're unfortunately in a whole bunch of procurement processes with MGM Resorts and, and other other places. So um, those will take a little bit longer, but uh, you'll see them everywhere is the, is the net result. Um, when you see so the Charger Go-Go machines, you'll know the guy that is behind the whole thing. You won't have to worry about walking out with that battery charger. And you won't have to worry about whether you got your cord on you. Um, you just can get a Charger Go-Go. One last question. Yeah. Fascinating conversation. If someone looks at Mark Prowse and says, man, I'd like to have a career like that. What piece of advice would you give them? Well, I, I've mentored a lot of people. Matter of fact, I've had a tremendous, I hope my, my mentees actually listen to quite a bit of this because they've, they've inspired me over all the years. Um, Dennis Finfrock taught um, all of us this. And he's really the kind of the, the, God, the godfather to entertainment here in Vegas. Um, literally, you can go to any of the places. De Darren Lebanati to, you know, Steve Stallworth to any of the resort, any of the places around here, we're all still here. Pat Christensen, that's the president of, of Las Vegas events. He was the granddaddy to all of us there, but he, he taught us all to be very, very grateful for um, what we've, what we've attained, but give back. Um, he was the president of IEVM, which is the International Association of Venue Managers. And that was one of his monikers that he taught was give back, give back. So I literally had 20 mentors in, any, in, in some years where I would literally spend tons of time with people to be able to, to tell them how, to, how to, to craft their career and how to steer through it. Um, and many, many of them have, have been highly successful. But I just, I just want to say that I think that 
um, for the for the young people coming out of college. Um, grab onto an internship wherever you can, paid or unpaid. Be dogged about it. It's it's really really tough to get into this business. Um, I don't care if you're talking about on the artist side or the agency side. I don't care if you're talking about with a professional sports team. I'll highly note professional sports teams, by the way, very, very, very difficult to get into those, more so than even the facility management piece. Um, but do, do your internships. You pay your dues. Start when you're a sophomore or junior. Um, be directional. Don't, don't be all over the map. Show them your passion. Make sure that they know that this is not just a fly-by-night thing because you like to watch baseball. You know, or right. you, happen to, you, you played soccer somewhere or you know, happen <laughs> to like music. It, it's because you, you've done your homework and you know the tenets of what, it, what you're looking for out of your internship. And when you do that, and you, they, it work hard because that, I'm telling you, there, this, this millennial moniker that's been put over top of things have given a bad taste in a lot of hiring people's man, mouths because it's, it's, it's like we want something for nothing kind of kind of thing and, and the people that have actually broken out of that um, have shown that they they have hard work and desire and drive and focus will, will break through those kind of things and, and build a, an amazing career like I've had and you have indeed Mark Prouse is a legend in Las Vegas and we had a great opportunity to spend time with him check out his new company chargergogo.com and you can find out more about how you can stay charged 100% and I 100% thank you for spending time with me today. It's my pleasure, Burke. Thank you. The Big Time Talker podcast brought to you by speakermatch.com wherever you go, whatever you do today, be kind to one another. Make it a great day. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.